you open your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 16. And let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Thank you uh, for those who have faithfully uh, recorded your word. Thank you that we have it uh, in our language, that we can freely read it, we can freely study it. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, that you have given to us. Who, whose one of his roles is to help us understand uh, the scriptures and to help us apply uh, the scriptures. And we do pray that the Holy Spirit would work tonight and uh, help us to have attentive ears and soft hearts to the word that you have for us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you think uh, of the Apostle Paul, what do you find most ad admirable about him? If you could take one of his qualities and make it your own, what would you choose? Now, for me, one of the things that I admire is how he handled suffering and persecution, how he didn't give up in the face of miserable situations. Some of his sufferings are disclosed in his second letter to the Corinthians. And this is an exhaustive, but it's a graphic catalog. He says this. Uh, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, lots of perils, okay, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. It's like, whoa, that guy had a very hard time, didn't he? And understand, this all unfolded as he served the Lord. And this was all promised when he was commissioned. And no doubt it must have been tempting at times to throw in the towel. He must have felt like he couldn't take any more beatings. You know, like the boxer, he was bloody and bruised, struggling to stand up, throbbing in pain, throwing in the towel, looked appealing, and yet he continued. Now sure, we don't worship Paul, but we can learn from his example and imitate him because he was imitating Jesus Christ, the one whom we do love, adore, and worship. Paul endured suffering just like the master. And the portion of scripture before us, although more well known for its miraculous elements and the famous declaration contained within, the context is actually a miserable situation. And it's one that's referenced in the list that I read from 2 Corinthians. The setting of this scene is in the city of Philippi. This is an important location, a prominent and wealthy city that was a trading hub in the ancient world. And it was here where Paul and his team came after receiving the Macedonian call. One thing that's interesting about this city is that it didn't have a synagogue. Okay, as you read through the book of Acts, Paul's ministry model was to go into a city, go to the synagogue and teach there. It doesn't happen in Philippi. And the lack of a synagogue tells us that there were very few Jews in this city. Because once there was 10 Jews, or 10 Jewish men rather, in a city, they would build a synagogue. So this location obviously had 
less than that. So this city was very different compared to the previous locations where he administered. Now, as the missionary team set about gospel ministry in this new field, plowing the dirt, planting the seed, they were met with demonic opposition. We read in verse 16 of a young lady who was possessed by a demonic spirit. We're told also she was a soothsayer or a clairvoyant. She possessed some ability to tell the future. The Greek text is actually quite interesting because literally it says she was possessed by a spirit of Pythenor. And that means very little to us, but it's a type of snake associated with the god Apollo and was said to guard the oracle of Delphi. If you know anything about history of this particular time, the oracle of Delphi was a famous shrine where people would come to have their questions answered, particularly if they were seeking guidance. Now, the stories linking Apollo and this snake vary, depends on who you read. But in our context, as one writer said, the important thing is that not far from Philippi, there was a shrine to the Pythion Apollo. So this slave girl was identified with that particular manifestation of the Greek God and seems to have told the future by means of her relationship to him. That is, she had been possessed by a demonic spirit associated with that cult. Okay, so, so this is that girl. Now we need to understand that Greek and Romans valued greatly those who could supposedly look into the future. Okay, before a general would ever go to battle, he would always consult something like the Oracle of Delphi. He'd want their blessing. And hence this possessed girl with her clairvoyant gift was highly sought after. And she was a real gold mine for her Masters, that they were selling her demonic abilities. Now, this does raise an interesting question. How can the demonic realm have any success when it comes to clairvoyance? Okay, how, how can they tell the future? And this is quite a big topic, but here is a succinct remark from one author. Okay, he says, Because demons are created beings, not gods themselves, we suppose that they cannot read minds nor actually foretell the future, but they can read and predict human behavior and can attempt to steer events toward a previously predicted conclusion. Okay, so in other words, they have observed human behavior patterns for thousands of years and they predict in light of what they have witnessed previously and then endeavor to steer things toward that prediction. But it's really important to grasp this point that neither Satan nor demons are all knowing like God. They are not all powerful like God. In fact, they are not on the same level as God in any sense. It's really important to understand that. But we see something intriguing with this demon-possessed girl. She's advertising the gospel. She's advertising, advocating for Paul's ministry, known as verse 17. These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Well, that's an interesting declaration. It, it was all true. Okay, so, so what's the play? What, what's the ploy? What is she endeavoring to accomplish? Well, it seems that the wicked one 
was endeavouring to discredit the gospel by associating it in people's minds with the occult. So it's a bit like today. If you have a product or a business, you wouldn't want to be associated with certain organisations because it would discredit your organisation. And that seems to be the intention. Derail the gospel by forming an apparent allegiance with it and then get the people to view Jesus as just another god in the bulging pantheon of Greek mythology. Now, interestingly enough, Paul doesn't deal with this instantly. The text says he allows it to go on for a couple of days. You know, perhaps he realizes the ramifications and he doesn't want to be driven out of this city too soon, but eventually he has enough and he casts out the demon. Okay, being an apostle, he had this gift. I believe that gift has ceased. It was a sign gift like tongues. But we read in verse 18 that on that same hour, the demon departed. This stresses that it occurred immediately, right away. And this reveals the power of Jesus over demons. But this created a problem. Now this young girl, was making her masters lots of money. And there's actually a play on words in the Greek text. Paul commanded that the demon come out. And the same Greek word is used in verse 19, where it says their gains were gone. So the idea is the demon is gone, but so is their money. It's a double exorcism. And this infuriated her masters. You know, and it reminds me of the story when Jesus cast the demons into the pigs and then they jumped off the cliff. Okay, the people didn't care that the demon-possessed person was now healed. All they cared about was the lost income from the pigs. And that's the sense in our text. And it's a timely reminder of the deadly danger of loving money. You know, the Bible warns us that the love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil. Now, loving money is a tree that produces all kinds of putrid fruits. It leads to all kinds of wickedness, down all kinds of debauched pathways. And in our text, it leads these men to endeavor to have Paul and Silas charged. We read in verse 19 that they, the missionaries, they were caught, meaning they were seized, and they were brought to the marketplace. Now, the marketplace was known as the Agora. All ancient Greek cities had an Agora. This was an open space, and it was here where citizens would conduct their daily political, judicial, social, and commercial activities. And it's interesting that excavations have actually uncovered this Agora at Philippi, and the city prison, which becomes the focus in the second half of the chapter, was located adjacent to it, okay, in very close proximity. But it was here where the city tribunal and civil cases were heard. And it was common for somebody to drag another down to the Agora and have the magistrates judge their particular cases. And this is what happened to Paul and Silas. Now, we know that lost money, this was the real issue for these gentlemen. But of course, that charge wouldn't stick. So a very clever and well-crafted case is presented, and it contained three elements of accusation. 
They began by awakening racial prejudice. Okay, verse 20, these men being Jews. Then verse 20 continues with the second point. It mentions they bring exceeding trouble in our city. And that's quite a vague phrase. And yet we need to understand that disturbances spelt bad news for the leaders of the city. Okay, Rome, Caesar, he frowned upon upheavals and rights. And hence potential threats needed to be exterminated. And then the third part is seen in verse 21. They were spreading their religion. You know, a key point for us to remember is that in the Roman Empire, there were two very different laws. One law for Roman citizens and another for those who were not Roman citizens. And if you were not a citizen, you had very few civil rights and were basically subject to the whims of the multitude and the magistrate. Fair legal proceedings weren't your right as a non-citizen. And that's what happened in our text. They assumed that Paul and Silas were not citizens. The crowds got stirred up, so the judges passed a guilty verdict. And they instructed that Paul and Silas be beaten and imprisoned. Now this beating was carried out by some men who were called the lictors. They were the attendants and the bodyguards of the magistrate. So they functioned like a bouncer today. And they carried around a bundle of rods. And these were used to execute the punishments. And they were the ones who publicly stripped and beat both Paul and Silas. And this is referenced in 2 Corinthians. He says, thrice I was beaten with rods. And this is probably the first of those occurrences recorded in Acts 16. Now understand, this would rip the flesh off one's back. It would leave one bloody and bruised, excruciating pain. And it also carried with a great shame because this would be conducted publicly, that there would be multitudes watching on. Okay, so this is torturous. Okay, but it didn't stop here. For these missionaries were then imprisoned. We read this in verses 23 and 24. You know, much to the delight of the crowd, these men, they're ruthlessly dragged off to prison. We're told they're locked in their inner cells like the dungeon. They're in the stocks, so they're bound to the wall. Okay, that they're in the location reserved for the worst of criminals. My friend, this is a miserable situation. Okay, this is their predicament. They, they had suffered intense persecution talk about bad circumstances and remember they were completely innocent okay this all unfolded simply because they served and obeyed the lord so i hope you can see that this is a miserable situation but from it i'd like to draw out two lessons that i trust will help us when we are faced with the inevitable, miserable, and difficult situations of life. So firstly, I want to see the response to the miserable situation. You know, when life is going bad for you, your trials and troubles are overwhelming, how do you typically respond? Okay, what's your go-to reaction? Some get angry and frustrated. Others get down and despondent. Some get a big dose of, it's not fair. Others suffer from confusion and delusion, whereas others get bitter. Now, I'm sure most would admit that we don't always respond well. 
In fact, miserable situations can often bring out the worst. But I'd like to draw your attention to how Paul and Silas responded. And and this always blows my mind when I think about this. In fact, it's very convicting for me personally. And really, this is the first miracle of the text. Try and put yourself in their situation. Please use your imagination. You have followed the Lord faithfully. You've responded to his call. You've gone to Macedonia. You've shared the gospel. You've freed a young girl from demons. And yet now you've been arrested. You've been beaten. You've been imprisoned for crimes you have not committed. You are bloody and bruised. Your your back is lacerated. You've lost much blood. You're in pain. You've been utterly humiliated in front of the multitudes. You've been locked up in this dungeon. It's cold. It's wet. It's rodent infested. You're bound in these stocks, okay, bound to a wall that they're tight around your ankles and they're stretching you out, further compounding the agony that's pulsating through your body. That's a miserable situation. Now, how do you think you would respond? I'm not convinced that my response would be very sanctified. How easy it would be to wallow in self-pity or or to curse or to plot revenge. You just wait till I get out. And yet notice in verse 25. Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. What an amazing response. I'm pretty sure these prison walls would have never heard such things. Their fellow prisoners heard them as they loudly declared praises unto God. And I wonder what their fellow prisoners were thinking. You know, imagine if this was today and these two guys were just belting out how great thou art. They did not succumb to moaning self-pity or cursing men, but rather they praised the Lord. What's interesting, that rejoicing is a central theme in the book of Philippians. And it was here where Paul would later write, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And this was not just an empty platitude for the apostle, for here it's exemplified. They were rejoicing in the Lord, singing praises unto him despite their miserable circumstances. That is an astonishing reaction. And it raises a question, how can one respond in such a way because that's not the natural reaction that's not the fleshly response so how can we respond like this in miserable situations when we suffer when we endure tribulation in the varying shapes and sizes because let's face it we don't always respond well when things are hard difficulties tend to dredge out the worst So how can we rejoice even in the midst of the most miserable situations? Two key points. There's probably more, but I want to give you two. Number one, we need to understand that rejoicing in the Lord and praising God does not depend on circumstances, but rather joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. If we are walking in the spirit, then we can respond joyfully, even when it makes no sense, humanly speaking, to respond in that way. That's the the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. But we will fail to be joyful if we're not filled by the spirit. 
As one preacher said, the problem with sad and miserable Christians is not their circumstances, but the lack of living a spirit-controlled life. And this will certainly be the case when trouble comes, when trials abound, when everything is miserable, because in favorable times we can give off the facade of joy. But when everything gets stripped away, when things are hard, that facade is shattered. So we need to be walking in the Spirit, surrender to His control, and He will produce the fruit of joy in our lives, even in miserable situations. Okay, and the second thing is our concept of God. You know, A.W. Tozer has famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And our concept of God is vital when it comes to responding well in the face of miserable situations. Okay, our reaction will say much about our convictions about who God is and what he is like. Okay, it will reveal what we truly believe about God. And the missionary's response in our text reveals much okay, about their beliefs about their God. As someone has said, Paul and Silas did not base their theology on their circumstances. Instead, they evaluated their circumstances in light of what they knew to be true about God. Their songs express confident trust that God would use their circumstances for their good and for his glory. That is how we can respond well in trying and tumultuous times. We need to be spirit-filled and we need to have strong biblical views about God. Okay, and it's important to develop that right now. It's really hard to develop those things in the midst of the difficulties. You know, but why is it so important for us to respond well in these situations? Well, it's because it reflects positively on God and the gospel. Okay, if we respond well, it acts like an evangelistic magnet drawing people to Christ. Paul and Silas right here had an impact on others as a result of how they responded. This certainly made an impression on the jailer. And it definitely impacted the fellow prisoners because notice they didn't flee when the earthquake hit. Okay, if one of the jails around here suddenly opened up, what would the criminals do? They'd be gone. They'd be out of here. And yet they listened in the text to Paul and Silas and perhaps some even come to faith. My friend, in the tough times, you can have a real impact on the lives of others if you respond well. A joyful response in terrible times can be a real gravitational pull for others toward Christ. And it can also encourage and strengthen fellow believers. So this is why it's vital with God's help to respond well in miserable situations. The second lesson that I'd like to draw out from the text is the reason for the miserable situation. Now, this is one of the most uh, common questions asked of God by both believers and unbelievers. The tone and intention definitely varies when the question is asked, but why does God allow bad things to happen? Okay, for those of us who are Christians, how are we to understand the miserable situations that we have to navigate on our journey through earth? Okay, well, why has God allowed it to happen? And you know, the Bible answers this question for us. And I want to restrict the answer to our text. Understanding this will only give part of the answer. 
But this is a necessary category as we traverse the trials and troubles of life. Paul and Silas faced this miserable situation because it was going to benefit others. Okay, they faced this miserable situation because it was going to benefit others. And often the Lord brings difficulties and despair into our life because it's going to be used as a tool to help someone else. Now please notice in the text that the big event is the miraculous conversion of the Philippian jailer. And this occurred because Paul and Silas were in prison. Okay, the Lord used their dire situation to bring the gospel into the lives of others. And what is particularly interesting is that in the closing section of this chapter, Paul reveals that he is a Roman citizen. If you remember what I said previously, there's very different rules if you're a citizen or if you're not. And this revelation was a real cat amongst the pigeons that the magistrate began to panic Okay, well, we've done the wrong thing. What we did to Paul was actually illegal. Okay, we get this. Paul and Silas could have played the citizen card before the beating and imprisonment. Okay, they could have played that card and it was all avoided. And yet this was not done until after the beating, after the imprisonment, after the earthquake. And I find that very fascinating. And although the text is silent, it seems likely that they were led by the Spirit to not reveal it at that point. Why? Because they had a divine appointment at the local jail. Okay, the, the mistreatment took place to get them access to this guard and the other prisoners. Now, perhaps you're a little bit skeptical about the point I'm trying to make, but I want to share with you the key reason why I draw it. It's because it's very obvious that this was the Lord's intention. In what he did next. Can we read here? This is the, the famous part of the story. He sent an earthquake. And this opened the doors and released the shackles. That detail stresses that this was a divine miracle. Okay? It's a very particular earthquake. And that's not a typical quality of an earthquake. And the prison guard, when he awoke, he saw that the prison doors were wide open. Now I'm guessing that would be the worst nightmare for someone of this occupation. Especially in Rome, because it meant death for him. Okay, you lose a prisoner, you die. And hence we read he's about to take his life, and then Paul intervenes. But get this, why did the Lord send the earthquake? Okay, how, how would you answer that question? Why did he send the earthquake? You know, usually we would probably answer that question, well, it was to release Paul and Silas. But the thing is, if you read on, the Lord knew they were going to be released the next day. Why, why send the earthquake? There needs to be more to it. Well, the miracle was unleashed because there was a jailer who needed Christ. And my friend, that reveals the heart of God. God longs, he desires for all mankind to be saved. He's willing that none should perish. And he will actively pursue and woo people to himself. Now, it's not an unconditional thing. It can be rejected. And yet it reveals the heart of God. He yearns for people to come to Christ. And he can use the suffering of his servants as a tool to bring people to salvation. Notice the question that the jailer asks. Verse 30, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And my friend, that's a vital question. And then the famous answer is pronounced, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that being God. And also believe in what he did, that being his work on the cross, and you will be saved. Saved from what? Well, this is salvation from sin and the deserved punishment for it. You know, this stresses that salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the way to be made right with God. That's the way to be reconciled with the Lord. Because understand, sin separates us from God. Sin places us under his judgment. Sin makes mankind God's enemy. And one will be condemned to an eternity in hell because of sin, and that's the just and fair punishment. That's the bad news. The good news is that God has provided a way for us to be saved, and it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this world, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, He paid the price for our sin. And just like with the jailer, to be saved, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way of salvation. Notice it says in verse 31, and his house. Okay, his house would be saved the same way. And you too will be saved this same way. The question is, will you come to Christ? Will you come to Christ? You know, this whole situation was personally and purposefully constructed by the Lord to bring the gospel to this jailer and his family. The Lord brought eternal good into the lives of others by allowing Paul and Silas to endure this miserable situation. And my friend, one reason why God allows miserable situations is that they can be used to help and benefit others. You know, they can act like a magnet that draws the unsaved to Christ, but they can also equip us to help our fellow Christians. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three and four says, blessed be God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all tribulation. Okay. God comforts us. Why? That we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Okay, God comforts us. God helps us, which equips us to help others in their tribulations. And this is a key category as we navigate the miserable situations of life. God uses them to bring about good in the lives of others. Now, perhaps you're thinking right now, well, hey, that's not very appealing. Well, why do I have to suffer so something good happens to Brendan? That's not fair. You know, we all have a bent towards selfishness. I I feel that. Why do I need to suffer for somebody else? But my friend, remember Jesus. Did, Did he not suffer for our benefit? Is that not the heart of the gospel? Why then do we think that we are above what our Lord went through? Okay, this is one of the reasons why the Lord allows miserable situations because it can work great good in the lives of others, whether they're unsaved or saved. 
Now, that's not the only reason. It will also bring you spiritual good. That's James chapter 1. And there are some lessons that we will only ever learn through tribulation. And there are other reasons too. But this text stresses that they can be used for the benefit of others. And I trust that this brings us some comfort because it means that the miserable situations of life are never purposeless. Okay, they're not pointless because God is always doing something through them. There's always a purpose, whether it be in our lives or the lives of another. And suffering for the benefit of others, that's the heart of the gospel that we profess. It's what Jesus did on our behalf, but on a far grander and greater scale. And now we are given the opportunity to help others through our miserable situations. Maybe it'll lead to someone getting saved because we've endured well. Maybe it'll help another Christian greatly. Only God knows. But rest assured, he has plans and purposes that he desires to accomplish. And so often through bad circumstances, he brings about great good. Just like with the salvation of this jailer and just like at the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this portion of scripture. Thank you for all that it has to teach us. And Lord, from what we've focused on tonight, when we face difficulties in life, none of us enjoy them and that's okay. But please help us to... To, to process them and to handle them well. And uh, please comfort us with the truth that, that you have a plan and a purpose that you are desiring to accomplish even through the worst uh, situations. Please write that on our hearts. Help us to believe that and to practice that in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.